Hello, welcome to episode two of Women in Design. This is Christy, and in this episode, Morgan and I talked with Chris Angel, founder of Hopscotch Labs, which is a design research and innovation firm in San Diego. And I've done some work with Chris and with Hopscotch Labs, by the way, so um, we're also in Chicago. Um, But Morgan and I wanted to hear from Chris about innovation. How is an innovation practice different from a UX practice? So we talked about that and about selling innovation in UX strategy. How will companies ultimately become more comfortable with these practices and how will innovation and design research continue to grow as a practice in the future? So um, I'll just go ahead and turn it over to us. Christy Leach with Hopscotch Labs, and I'm here with Morgan. Go ahead, Morgan, and introduce yeah, yourself. Hi. I'm Morgan uh, Caputo. I'm from Spring CM. Hi, I'm Chris Angel with Hopscotch Labs. I founded the firm about two years ago. It's a design research and innovation firm. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what innovation, what an innovation firm does? Beyond innovating? <laughs> <laughs> Like, what does that look like when, when in your day-to-day work? My day-to-day is a lot of sticky notes and uh, connecting dots between disparate ideas. But uh, typically, innovation happens when you are helping someone um, take their processes, take what's possible now, and reimagine it in a future state that... Um, incorporates other outside modalities that they may not um, have thought to include or um, didn't know uh, could impact their business and bottom line. And and listeners might have noticed that Chris and I are both from Hopscotch Labs. So on the one hand, it's it's really cool for me to hear how Chris describes that. Like it's always useful for, for me to, to hear that. Um, but I'm also curious, like, what kind of questions do you have, Morgan, about well, that? You know, I thought it was so cool, um, Chris, when I was on Hopscotch's website, kind of, you know, doing a little prep work for chatting with you tonight. And um, and I saw that word, innovation, right? Um, but then I, then I thought about how I feel like a lot of the people that I work with every day, and I definitely work in a, you know, a product organization, um, it seems like everybody's jockeying for having the corner on having cool new ideas. Like we are definitely not short on great ideas. Um, what we're maybe a little bit short on sometimes is actually like doing the research to vet out which ones are good and bad. So when you say innovation, I think, oh gosh, like how would you ever convince somebody that like they should pay you to have the ideas? Because I live in a world where, you know, every day somebody has another idea. So Where's like the difference between just like coming up with light bulb moments and what you guys do in terms of putting really like a practice around that? I'd say there's two different things. One is longevity and the other is a scientific approach. Um, uh, longevity meaning that a good idea will only get you so far that it will get you to the next big idea, the next step. 
but you're always iterating because you're never quite where you need to be. And that's usually because you don't have enough information on who your audience is and what they're really doing with their product. Um, the uh, scientific approach is really something that you can always go back to and re, um, redo the study, redo the things that you've been doing and uh, come to new conclusions. Um, and usually those conclusions are dependent upon who's in the room at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those two spaces are usually how I see innovation as being successful. One, you have to um, look beyond where you are right now. You have to bring in new voices to the conversation. And by bringing in new voices, listening to the people that are using and buying your products, you get that longevity. Um, You are able to project out into the future that much further. By using a scientific approach, you can revisit all of your uh, research and um, use those methods on an iterative process to make sure that you're still on the right track and that you're actually hitting all of the metrics that you had set up prior and reassess your assumptions as you're going along. Is that ever challenging? Like getting people to reassess those assumptions or having that moment where you said, you know, we took your idea, we turned it into a hypothesis and you weren't right. Like that's got to be a challenging conversation to have with somebody that's, you know, paying your bill. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, And I think that's part of the reason why I don't really hold my punches. Um, It's mostly they come when a company is coming to an innovation firm, when they're, or any market research firm, they're saying, I don't know. And that's always a good place to start a conversation. And if you come in with certain assumptions and you're saying, well, I think that they like blue and we've always been pushing towards this direction and we get out there and we're talking to their customers and their customers are saying there is no way that they would ever buy anything blue and there's no way that they would go into this direction and here are those reasons. And then you look at the things that they're doing and why they're doing it. You can come back with a much stronger answer to that, um, the initial hypothesis that they liked blue and that they were going in this direction. You can say that they don't like these colors for these reasons and the direction that you're trying to get them to go in isn't someplace that they're willing to go because of these um, other reasons. And it's all about being able to back up the reasons why the initial assumptions are wrong. And you can't do that if you don't do your research. Right. That's where it probably really helps to have that strong sort of research methodology in place and the scientific approach, because at the end of the day, it isn't your opinions versus their opinions. You have these facts, right? And it's got to be a little bit more irrefutable. Right, right. And sometimes... They start questioning, well, you only talk to five people. You only talk to 12 people. How many people does it really need? do you really need to talk to to be able to find out that you're on the right track or you're not? And if those five people were uh, really defined and chosen because they're part of your, your main segmentation models and you've done your research on who's buying and 
why um, and who these people are who are buying your products, then those five people are far more valid than your project managers or your product owners within the firm. So it's, it's definitely important to listen to your consumer and your audience and definitely very important to understand that it doesn't necessarily matter how many people are in the study. What matters is how you're asking the questions and what questions, what answers are coming back to you. Yes. Do you find that there's a little bit of a bias, you know, when you have maybe like a new client um, towards having more like quantitative methods? Like I, I get a lot of well, if we could sell, send out a survey and get you know feedback from 300 people, then I would believe this. And I really just want to interview five people, or you know, let's look at the analytics. And and it seems like a lot of people are really willing to accept like that sort of hard number crunching. And sometimes it's a little bit harder to get them to believe in the more you know fuzzy interview. These are the themes we heard. You know, kind of kind of analysis. Right. Um, well, it's interesting because if we actually looked at all of the data coming out of those five interviews, you'd have uh, probably closer to 6,000 data points. Mm -hmm. And they're all unique and they're all disparate data points. Because they're disparate data points, it's much more difficult to get to a single um, point that is driven home from everybody's perspective because everybody approached that answer differently. But if you're only asking one question, and that question was developed or derived out of something that the team thought they knew, an assumption, then that one data point um, is irrelevant, and it doesn't matter how many people answered the, the question. Yeah, interesting. So, Chris, what do you see as being the, the difference between an innovation practice and a UX practice? Is it that longevity? Is it taking that further step back to to test assumptions, or what what do you see as being the difference between the difference between an innovation practice and a design practice, or a, a user experience practice, or or a, des, a design practice? You could talk about that too. Yeah, what I've seen here in San Diego is that the approach by a user experience professional is. And by firms that are practicing user experience, um, they're focused on the one interaction of how somebody is using their product and what is what are they doing with the product at that time, in that moment. And it's a very limited scope of inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with innovation, you're looking at their entire context and you're looking at their journey to use uh, to even deciding to pick up that product um, or that or their phone or whatever it is that they're engaging with. So mm -hmm. it's not just a limited um, moment in that person's life. And you're also looking at who else is in the room with them when they're actually picking up the phone. Is it, are they alone or are they with their kids and their husband? Are, is it dinner time? You know, what, what's really going on? Um, and then when you look at design practices, uh, the difference between an innovation firm and a, a design practice is that we take a 
more contextual approach to understanding the client space and their customer space. Mm -hmm. In that way, we can really understand where these people are coming from and their perspective and what messages, what uh, designed spaces and elements will actually impact their opinion of that company um, and their use of that product. So a design firm may or may not have that access to that information, and they also may not have um, the scope of, of their project that would in- allow them to get to that information. That's really interesting to me because I see UX as being an umbrella that covers both innovation and design. Like I think especially when you're working kind of day to day inside of a uh, inside of a particular product, which is what I do, I try to affect both our strategy and the actual design of you know our UI of of that experience. Um, would you? I mean, is there a reason that like you separate UX from innovation? Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. Is Tell me about that. That's really intriguing because it's really hard. Everybody thinks that UX is just the design end of things. And it makes me crazy because I want to go out and do contextual analysis and understand the bigger themes here of like how our product is making people feel and what they're looking for in that experience. And it's 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 harder to sell that sometimes. It is. And it, the big challenge there is that UX, um, which is user experience, has that term has been coming out of websites and uh, app design. So you've got already a spin on it that is very digitally focused. And so then that's the context in which it's being talked about is within these digital, digital realms. And that already takes it outside of the context of human engagement in the human environment. Um, you've also got the term user right in that title. So user experience. It's not a person's experience. It's a user. So they've already abstracted it. Uh, and that abstraction causes companies and organizations to not look at that title or that, that term as a way to impact the entire bottom line. Uh, it, for them, it impacts one piece of the entire puzzle. And for somebody to actually come in and say, hey, um, we want to look at the entire uh, context. We want to bring in this other, these other types of inquiry into the project. Uh, that takes a big leap. They need to step back and think about, you know, why? Why is it important to do that? And the user experience experience aspect hasn't necessarily given them a reason for why that's necessary. And it's mostly because uh, so many people are getting into that space and not everybody in that space is trained. So they don't have, they may not have the language or they may not have the experience. And then uh, the majority of articles out there are very digital heavy and focused on the minutia of, um, digital applications. So and that interaction design or that that yeah. space in which UX suddenly turns into UI. Right, right. And so the reason why I separate it so much is that it's really just one piece of the entire puzzle. Uh, 
because it's not just a the, your customer interacting with your product or your website or your app. It's also your staff and how they're interacting with it, how they're interacting with the customer and interacting with each other. It's the business and how they develop their processes and what processes are in place to support their staff, to support their customers. It's the environment in which they're in. And when you're working within innovation, you work within all of those contexts because context and the context in which a business operates and within which their staff operates and their customers operate, all of that matters. And it's not just about one single person's experience. I, I think it's also a positional thing too, or the way, or how progressive an organization is too, because I mean, it's becoming quite common to have people in with UX and their job title. Um, maybe they're within the product team or there's a whole UX team, UX designers, maybe you've even got it you've got enough people to where you've got specialties within that UX group. But if you just have someone who's maybe a, a mid-level person, it, I could imagine you're not necessarily going to entrust innovation for your company to that person who's in that position. Whereas I think it's a lot less common to have an innovation department. Um, I think if a company comes to an innovation firm or is interested in working with one, there's more of an expectation that they're going to be involved in strategy um, but it, yeah, if you're hired straight out and, um, brought into a company, you're not brought in to innovate. You're really brought in to focus on one specific, per, um, piece of that company. Yeah. Well, and then if, if innovation is something that just some of the most progressive firms do, like, isn't that something that IDEO does for the big fancy companies like maybe Amazon or, um, Johnson and Johnson or so how do you talk about that with other types of firms, smaller firms? Um, how do you get people thinking about it possibly being something that their company might do? I would say that IDEO is like any other firm out there. Uh, well, the, the companies that go to IDEO and they go to the Doblins that go to the frog design, they're going to these organizations for a reason. And a lot of times it's because they're experiencing pain and that pain could be economical. It could be, well, a lot of time it is economical. Um, and when I approach small firms, um, and when I approach the different nonprofits around town, the things that the conversations that usually come up, are revolving around a pain of some sort. I don't understand my customer or I really have a lot of information that I need to convey and I'm not sure how, I'm, how we're going to do it. Are we on the right track? Um, I was just speaking with a hair salon last week and the stylist, the owner, um, she's behind the chair all day for eight hours a day and she loves it. She really enjoys doing the work, but she's been doing this for 16 years and she's starting to see no end in sight. 
So for her, she needs to diversify to figure um, and grow her business in order to be able to move outside and move from behind the chair and do some other things with her business. And our conversation revolved around what's possible, where, what could she do, how could she do it, and what does she need to put in place in order to make that happen. Those are the same conversations that IDEO is having with their customers. It's just on a different scale. So do you find that the trick then is always to kind of discover what those business goals are, like what their kind of end game is, and then speak to how you'll be able to help them solve that? Is that, does it always end up being like a business goal, you know? Oh, oh definitely. It's a business, it's a business goal. goal. It's also a customer goal. Yeah. Yeah. So the, like the hair salon, uh, her customers need to go along the journey with her. And if they don't, she'll have to find brand new customers who want to be part of her new journey. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge. <laughs> so, but, it, but it sounds like you, you don't try to sell your services based on just saying like, well, this is what everybody's doing or here are the virtues of, you know, having a scientific method around things or why you would do research with customers. You know, you kind of, it sounds like you kind of always map it back to what their goals are, which is a very... Very UX of you, actually. You know, kind of that empathy. Like. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, the reason why I try not to sell a process or a direction or um, the skill set, uh, it's mostly because it's foreign to people and it's hard to wrap your head around unless you have an example. And for them their current experience is the example that we can talk to and uh, elaborate on, dig into. So um, knowing where their goals are, knowing where they're trying to get to is uh, relatively an easy thing to have a discussion around. Uh, Sometimes you run into somebody who has very abstracted or, unrealistic goals and the whole purpose of the conversation or the research is to help them develop those goals into something that's much more concrete. But yeah, I absolutely agree that the, if you, if you try to sell an approach, um, then they have to already know that that approach exists and that their, uh, that approach will support and help them, in their work and that doesn't work for every every business out there yeah i'm sure that's kind of rare that somebody comes like you know preloaded with an understanding of what value that approach has to offer yeah and that's usually only like the design firms who are already working in research and strategy or have had some component of that within their process before and then as the much larger clients so um, that would be the Amazons. That would be like the Facebooks and the, um, it, it, I want to say SC Johnson and um, ta- um, the different commodity companies in the world. Sure. You know, Morgan, this is reminding me of a conversation we had in the last episode where we were talking about um, kind of the duh factor, where if <laughs> if you're talking to somebody who doesn't, you, where you don't want to lapse into the jargon of user experience, um, but when you simplify the language around 
um, oh, let's go talk to some people that the response can kind of be like, well, duh. <laughs> oh, what a great idea. I guess like maybe we should talk to customers or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Chris, I'm wondering like when you're trying to talk through someone's, their, their problems, their goals, um, do you ever run into that or is there something that you do to kind of quickly move into showing value specific to what you do? Um, <laughs> or or does that not really sound like like a problem that that you have yeah no it definitely comes up it's uh so for example um a colleague of mine is just starting a new uh speaker series here in san diego and he's super passionate about it he's done something similar um but more on the podcasting vein and now he's moving into the physical environment and he's really engaged with this idea. We sat down for an hour and we were talking about where we were going, what we did for a living and basically laid out this idea that I do something similar to market research, um, helping companies get closer to their customers. And for the most part, he, did the nod and shake of his head. Yeah, that makes sense. But then as we started getting into where he's going with this new um, speaker series, we got into a lot of customer experience pieces and a lot of uh, logistics and a lot of uh, experiential aspects. Mm -hmm. And he realized that he didn't have all the answers. He didn't have, he didn't know how he was approaching it. He didn't have the, um, the pieces of it as thought out as he had expected. And that's when he realized that I do a lot more than market research, that the work at Hopscotch Labs is much broader, much more um, disciplined and looks at a variety of different uh, engagements that, he was unfamiliar with, even though he had worked in a very similar space and uh, is just transitioning this over to a new environment or a new modality. So, um, so yeah, there is the duh aspect, but there's also the realization that it's not just those conversations that get you to where you need to go. Uh, so some of the questions that you were asking him were making him think about things that he hadn't thought of on right. his own. And that can't, comes from your your training, your background in design research. Right, right. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if you guys have experienced it, but when you do have those, que- um, those questions of, yeah, it makes sense, you have to talk to your customers. And we do that all the time. We do surveys. We do uh, intercepts. But it's what you do with that information that really matters and how you get to that information and why you would go out and get it in the first place. All of that really matters. Yeah. So what do those next steps look like then? So you've gone out and and you have all this information and you've accumulated it. And like, do you, what do you do next with it for your clients? Well, there's usually a lot of sticky notes. (laughs) Uh, It really depends on, what the project is, but we're usually mapping uh, concepts and mapping ideas. Um, and by mapping them, I'm meaning that we draw out the relationships that we 
uncovered through the research and those conversations. And by drawing them out, mapping those relationships, you get a semblance of understanding of how this is structured um, and where where there are problems and how those problems um, might be facilitating uh, um, the overall issue or be not related at all and we can move on. So we take out those maps, um, we take insights from those conversations and we start building a case forward. We also develop um, business values and customer values to really understand and be able to evaluate concepts that come out of this space. Um, so what I've just described is like the analysis phase. Uh, the next phase is actually developing uh, a language around it and developing ideas from it. Um, and that's more of a synthesis phase. And from that synthesis, then you're starting to build. And once you start to build, you need to test on a regular basis. Um, test your ideas, validate the direction that you're going in with your customer, with their customers, with people who may or may not come in contact with this. And uh, at every step of the phase, you're getting that much closer to where you need to go and how you're going to get your customer, your client there. That makes sense. Yeah. I think whether you're talking about UX or talking about innovation, what somebody who's knowledgeable and well-trained brings, part of what they bring is just a rigor. You know, we're not going to jump at the first idea that, that makes intuitive sense to everyone. Um, we, we know how to um, make sure that we've included the right people in a study. So I think in both instances, the rigor that someone brings is, is valuable. Yeah, I'd like to applaud your use of that word. I, I think that's a really great way of saying something that I've I always try to express too, which is like we have a practice here. We have a, you know, like I almost have a religion known as talk to human beings <laughs> to help solve their problems. You know, and and I, sometimes I feel like you know I'm I'm preaching that you know, and I think that is what we can bring. We we are not gonna we're gonna clear our own assumptions. Um, it makes it makes some of the product people I work with a little bit crazy sometimes. In fact, I'll say, well, gee, I don't really know how to solve that yet. And they're like, but I know. And I feel like you actually know. You're just not willing to say it right now. And it's like, no, that's a that is like a, that's something I've been trained to do. Like that's I'm holding myself to a higher standard. I have to assume I don't know, you know. And mm-hmm. anyway, that yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. The um, um, founder of TED Talks said something similar. And I believe his name is Steve Werman. I could be wrong, though. Um, he basically said that uh, he's stupid. He goes into every conversation thinking he's stupid. He knows nothing. And help me understand your process. Help me understand what this thing is. Uh, it may be Tide. It may be Kleenex. But help me understand it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, This that assumption that I am not going to have all the answers. The, there's like this myth, you know, of the genius designer, you know, this one person that can kind of come in and look at, um, you know, at, a, at an, an experience and create just this wonderful thing. And, and there's even like, you know, people will be like, oh, that was like what Steve Jobs is or I need to hire a Steve Jobs for my company. And it's like 
dude, he didn't do that. Like he, he asked people questions. He, you know, like you don't get there because one person is a genius or a team of people are geniuses. You get there by assuming you don't have the answers. And yeah, starting from a place where you're like, I don't know, I have some ideas, but I'm probably pretty dumb about it. Let me go ask experts. So on this end, I always start projects by doing a brain dump because we all have assumptions going into a project and it's just better to get it all out there right away and say, this is what I think I'm going to find. And here's the assumptions that I have. And then break them apart once you get out there and find out that you're really wrong. Um, And here's why you're wrong. I think that gives a good opportunity for stakeholders to feel like you've listened to them too. You know, that, that brain dump. Yeah, and that's also why we do a lot of um, expert interviews at the beginning, so you can get your stakeholders to talk to you about what they know and why they know it. And you can talk to uh, you talk to pretty much everybody you possibly can at the beginning of any project to get to why they're making the decisions that they're making and what that means for the project going forward. Yeah, but. Yeah, stakeholders, <laughs> experts. I, do you guys ever, so in my mind, like stakeholders um, who I, you know, I will on a day-to-day basis, like just totally love and respect. At first I'll say that. But I always think of the word stake, like, you know, like a pointy stick sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like they're holding, you know, coming, kind of coming at. Because there's so much passion and investment from, you know, whoever's, you know, working with you on this thing around a lot of ideas. That, you know, it's always important, I think, to give breathing room to the great ideas that they've had and then to say well that's awesome like without you without this conversation we wouldn't have been able to develop this great list of hypotheses that we're then going to go out and test absolutely and we also have to realize that the internal holder of the flame is not the only person that's a stakeholder our their customer is a stakeholder in any change that they make and they'll definitely show it at the register and whether or not they're going to make that purchase or leave it, um, leave it behind. Yeah. And thanks for that mental image, Morgan. I think <laughs> from now on, stakeholders might be a little scarier than they were. <laughs> they almost always come at you with steak. <laughs> not always. You can maybe like if you're into like prime rib, you know, you can think about like steak holders maybe they're really nice they're like bringing you some omaha steaks or some they're almost always bloody is that it? Yeah, okay i guess i have maybe a negative opinion that's coming through here no at, at first i was picturing this delicious steak maybe i'll just stick with that yes, switch back to that image just yeah, yeah. i'm like this conversation took a delicious turn yeah no, it does bring up a point, though. Like, um, I worked on a project for Pepsi uh, a while back, and when we went to China to do some of the uh, the field research, we met the guy who opened up China to Pepsi, and he was the number two employee for Pepsi in China. Fascinating guy, but he's gone through a lot of battles just to get where he, uh, where he is, as well as where Pepsi is in that country. So. Um, a stakeholder really is somebody who, like a piece of raw meat, has gone through a lot of battles and is bloody and bruised and needs the raw meat for those bruises. But then he's also the person that has to make sure that this is going to survive long past our engagement 
And we have to make sure that we're supporting them and their needs. So while I always approach stakeholders with this idea of, well, they're really entrenched and they know this product, they know this company super well, they're also somebody who can help me champion the findings and make sure that what we find in the field from these other stakeholders, their customers, also becomes very relevant and necessary to them, that they can take it forward and advance the cause much further than we could ever do, um, just because they're going to stay with the company longer than we will. That's a really good kind of kind of humbling too. I think a little bit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it, we always forget that um, we're only engaged with this company for six months, maybe a year. Uh, they are going to take this information that we're developing and they're going to push it that much further and, um, and decide what to do with it once we stop that engagement. Uh, so it's very important that they are taken along for the journey, but they also learn and know why they're championing our results and the strategies and the designs that we're t um, telling them that these are, this is the shit, this is what you need to pick up and take with you. Yeah. So how do you see companies becoming more familiar with innovation and design strategy in the future? Do you think that will happen, that more firms will see the need for um, design process in, in developing strategy? I think I'm already seeing it here in San Diego. The last night I went to a introduction or um, it was basically a kickoff to a, hack a hackathon that's going to happen in May. So two months out and they wanted to get as many people on board as possible, build excitement, um, make sure that everybody knew what types of pro problems were ahead of them. And like any hackathon, they always forget that you really do need to do your research and understand who's in in the spaces and what opportunities are in the spaces before you get started. But what I saw there and the questions that were coming from the audience definitely related to that. It related to this idea that, you know, we are not entering into any sort of design competition or hackathon without understanding who's out there and what's going on. We're, uh, there were business strategists in the audience. Um, there were design strategists. There were people who were uh, actively curious about uh, who's engaging with uh, this potential future product that they want us to build in May. And that doesn't happen if you don't have people who are already intensely curious about um, the engagement or how this product is going to live in the future. And when it comes to innovation, uh, that's the key element. You can talk about something being brand new. You can talk about something never seen, um, something that's never been seen before, but the real innovation is something that actually functions and works for the people that, and it works in such a way that it makes it really easy to engage with and to keep and to use 
and to make a part of their life. Yeah. So, so yes, it's innovation is definitely happening, and I see it um, happening in both student level as well as uh, advanced uh, business level, and it's happening because people are seeing that just small instances of innovation are not enough to support the product lifestyle um, cycle and it's not enough to support their customers and their business needs. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I want the whole world to think that way, you know, <laughs> but it can't happen fast enough. <laughs> yep. It's good to hear that you think you're seeing more and more of that every day. Yeah. And, you know, it's also something that we're cultivating here. So it's it's hard to say that um, it's happening in the wild, but I think it it really is happening in the wild. And it's really happening um, because people are becoming much more used to this idea that you talk to your customers and you do this iterative rounds of tests and you find out what's going on. And when you do that, you get to something that much more uh, effective and that much more innovative for your firm. So it's just becoming something that more people are aware of. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And cultivating it, Chris, like (laughs) that's, you know, I think it's such a, such a cool, I don't know, from where I sit in the Midwest, you know, working for a B2B product, like I just thought it was so darn cool that hopscotch could even exist, you know, and, and just such a nice, bold move, especially, you know, in the markets that you're in and the, the types of companies that you're working with. Like, I just, I don't really have a question here. I just want to say I'm darn, like darn impressed and, you know, really want to see more more places like yours exist. <laughs> I'm sure. Maybe well, you don't want to see more places like yours, but you definitely want to see. <laughs> well, we were having that conversation here too. And, and on the one hand, it's really awesome to see this pickup. And then the question of, do I really want competition? Uh, not necessarily, <laughs> but competition actually sparks bigger and better projects. So it's awesome. And then, I was actually having a conversation with a guy up in San Francisco, I think last week about peer produced um, products. And what he was saying is that when you're shepherding through a product or an idea, you actually get to someplace better than if you actually take ownership of it. Mm. And then the other aspect of, like the peer produced platform space is that it's all about the sharing of information. And once you share that information, it ends up being like a hockey puck that gets passed around and it, that hockey puck gets stickier and stickier. So you end up with a lot more ideas attached to it that creates a much more harmonious place to live in. So definitely um, much more interested in creating a vibrant, engaged um, community here that values design and and values um, innovation and absolutely values their customer and their customer's 
relationship to their product and and what that actually means for developing new insight and new directions to go in. Yeah, I was thinking the other day about um, the, the companies who feel the need to completely annihilate the competition. Um, yeah. And I just, it doesn't seem like that's something that we would ever need to do. <laughs> that we're not going to, to run out of work. Um, we're not going to turn into some monolith that needs to be a monopoly in, in design. It's no. Hard, no. Yeah. It's hard to imagine anybody needing to do that. Yeah. And, and usually when you do that, it's because you're trying to live on margins and it's hard to live on a margin. Yeah. We live on this passion and this idea and the more people that sort of join us in thinking this way, I think the more exciting the whole thing gets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know what I think would be neat is, you know, if you've got a UX department, if a company has a user experience department, they've got designers using um, whatever flavor of the design process, and and you've got people who are successfully um, guiding a product and, and, or successfully supporting that, the roadmap for a product, then you've potentially got people who could be your innovation department. You've got a potential little innovation engine there in your company. It would just be neat for more companies to realize that and do something amazing with it. Yeah, that's definitely like my passion is to try to be that innovation engine and have a bit of that. And, um, and it's been, a, you know, not exactly an easy uh, thing to achieve here, but I, but I do see it happening more and more and it's contagious, you know, like once you start showing the payoff of thinking this way, or you start to like really have a couple super engaging, you know, customer centric, you know, research driven conversations and do analysis, even with people outside of, you know, the, the UX team, it becomes kind of, yeah, kind of addictive, you know, and (laughs) before you know it, you know, the whiteboard's covered in post-it notes and people are being like, whoa, I get it. The theme is really about confidence in the such and such, you know, like, yeah, all of a sudden, if you had just started the whole conversation by saying, well, the theme that you want to look at here is, you know, the confidence that they're feeling in the, you know, the thing, whatever that is, uh, you know, everybody would just sort of see that as a, a very, I think not meaningless, but kind of fuzzy word, like, oh, that's easy. But if you start to sort of tell those stories and bring them back to the conversations you've had with your customers, it like clicks. And then before you know it, I've had these, these kind of cool moments where a word like confidence happens to be our buzzword right now. It starts just sort of making its rounds. And then all of a sudden, like people on the sales team are using it to like sell the product. And, uh, you know, the whole product team is talking on their roadmap about how like, this is the year of confidence and contract management, you know, and you know, it's just like this really cool thing. And I can't say that like, we always get credit for that. Um, but we definitely seem to be like upping the passion factor a little bit with those kinds of conversations. So I think whether you're in a, in a company and you're like one little innovation engine on your own or, you know, privileged to think about things in an even bigger way, like you guys do. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it can be really contagious and really, um, inspiring to like anybody that touches those efforts. It sounds like you guys are around too many Sharpies and sticky notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was fun. Uh, 
it's been a treat to get the two of you on the same call and talk about these things. Definitely. Yeah, it's been a blast. I'm glad that this opportunity came up. Thank you. That's it for episode two. Um, send us your innovation questions and comments on Twitter. We are now on Twitter. Our handle there is Women Design Cast. And you can leave comments on SoundCloud, comments and questions. So that's another place. Um, if you are on iTunes, it would be really great if you could review us there because it helps other people find us. And um, that ultimately helps us promote the women that we interview for the podcast. So for episode three, we will be talking with Don Russell and Christy Abgerinos of Intuit about how they've engineered a more customer-centric culture in their engineer-dominated organization. I was really encouraged by how successful they've actually been with that effort, and I picked up some, some useful tips from their customer empathy toolkit, which you'll hear about in that episode. Um, lastly, you might have noticed that our theme song is different. Our new theme music is courtesy of Paladino. So learn more about Paladino and listen to other great tracks by them at paladinomusic.com. Bye!